0: Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the first book of Samuel, uh, chapter 15. First book of Samuel, chapter 15. <clears throat> I have the entire book... Um, broken down here within my message uh, today. It's going to be broken uh, into two parts. So uh, we'll get through what we can today and then we will pick up the rest, hopefully be able to finish up chapter 15 next Sunday. So let us go ahead and pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and we just thank you uh, just for who you are. Lord, we're just thankful uh, just for the freedoms that we have in this country still, Lord, that we can gather together as the church, gather together at a local church, and Lord, be able to sit under uh, the preaching of the truth, and Lord, be able to gather together and openly confess our faith aloud and not be governed by the government, Lord, not being told what we can and can't do. Because, Lord, ultimately we know you are our king. You're the king. And you are sovereign. And you are over all things. And, Lord, we pray, Father, today as well that your word would be received, Lord, even through a a man like myself, Lord, with so many faults and so many inadequacies. Lord, that you would, by your power, use such a sinful man as myself to preach your perfect truth. Open the hearts of the people today that they would receive the word of God, and Lord, that they be strengthened and that they would be nourished in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday, uh, we really dealt with this, uh, this, the first three verses when uh, we saw Samuel... Uh, meeting up, called by God, to meet up with Saul and give him specific instructions, what he was supposed to do. Uh, It was almost like a preliminary uh, battle command that was really the total annihilation. Um, Saul was given specific uh, instructions. He was given an assignment uh, to completely to obliterate the Amalekites. And the assignment was confirmed. You had the, uh, the prophet of Israel, and then you had the king of Israel coming together and putting this together to where uh, the extent and the gravity of this command was to kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The complete destruction of the Malachite people. For their am, for their actions of ambushing God's people when they came out of captivity. And this is what, four hundred years, I believe that that uh, the Lord had been setting this in motion, and then literally out of nowhere, uh, these instructions were given to Saul and we know as the story progresses we can see uh, these great failures which we will get in this morning and look at ourselves the process of going through these verses like a mirror and seeing uh, that God still holds his people uh, to a standard God still holds his people to obeying his commands and Uh, It's a very serious story. It's a very tragic story. But at the end of the day, it points us to Christ. Where there is the tragedy of the cross, don't get me wrong, but there is this overwhelming, overarching theme of hope uh, that can only only be found in Jesus Christ. Which brings us uh, to verse 4 and 5, where it says Saul had gathered the people together. And numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. And we see, you know, Saul does have some good points. You know, we know that uh, the story of Saul can be a bit depressing. Uh, even this fact that the people had put in there, this is the reflection, this is the face, this is the personification of the people. And the story of Saul and how he came in to the kingdom and uh, how he goes out is, is is really a tragedy. But it doesn't mean that in the midst of tragedy that there aren't some good points to point out in those who are complete and total failures. Uh, Saul's uh, one shining Uh, characteristic was his ability to gather people together, uh, to gather and formulate a battle, and to number the people, to prepare the people. And Saul, too, was somewhat of, I mean, I don't know how he obtained these things, but he was somewhat of a military strategist. He did know how to gather a battle. He did know how to do these things. Saul gathered together, I mean, 210,000 soldiers, and came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. A couple of things to point out here. this whole idea in the original language, where it says that they were to lay in wait, really would signify uh, to lay an ambuscade or ambush. Saul was gathering his people, and he was now going to um, destroy the Amalekites, but the way he was going to start this battle is that he was going to lay in wait for them. And this, this, this idea about um, Saul laying wait in the valley, what this valley actually was, what you can look this, look this up in scripture as well, is what would be considered would be a torrent bed. Have you ever heard of that before? Like what a torrent bed is? Well, a torrent bed is really a valley that um, during the rainy seasons of the year, it would form a gulf in the ground, like wedges, like a valley deep down from just the heavy rivers and stuff would form these deep valleys. Where this is where they were... Uh, prepared to take on and to surprise and to ambush uh, the Amalekites was on this torrent bed and this ravine. And also, these kind of ravines were seen as well with when Elijah the prophet was hiding from King Ahab. He chose as a hiding spot a torrent bed east of the Jordan. And so, what we see here, we see this 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 idea that. They're going to wait for these people. But the, you know, one thing that really, really, I mean, I read through this probably, I'm not kidding you a hundred times going through this, just so it melts into my DNA. I just want to know what is going on. And one thing came to my mind is that we need to always go low when it comes to the destruction of our enemies, One thing that is nearly, seems to be against nature, right? For any one of us, even being born again, is this idea that going low. I mean, the scriptures always point uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We see this idea as the believers. You know, in our attack towards the enemies is that we need to get on our knees. We need to be humble. You know, our our um, greatest defense and offense against the enemy is when we go low, not when we go high. And this really struck me because I remember, I think it was John Bunyan said that, you know, the, the devil laughs at our plans. You know, he laughs at all these different things that we do in our lives, but when we get on our knees, he trembles. And I know for a fact that if we would just be willing to go low those enemies in our lives, many of us today, including myself, face an onslaught of enemies, right? It could be coming from any arena of our lives. And you know that oppressive feeling, right? And how do we want to deal with that normally? We want to deal with it through our intellect. We want to deal with it through our knowledge. We want to deal with it with maybe becoming worldly. We want to deal with it through getting revenge, you know? But how many of us actually want to deal with it on our knees, You know, we understand that the way to destroy the enemy's devices, right, is to go low. To go low. And we see this here in a physical sense. We see, you know, we see Saul, you know, as he ambushed the Malachites. And remember this one thing here quickly, is that what happened to Israel when they came out of the promised land? What did the Amalekites do to God's people? They ambushed God's people. It's almost like a reciprocal response here. But the reality is is that Saul went low to make his attack. And God did move on this attack, but as you know, that there was plenty of problems. We look at verse 6, it says, Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, Now listen to this. Lest I destroy you with them. Just think about that just for a minute before we move any faster and quicker through these verses. Stop for a moment and ponder this reality that God is telling the Kenites, right? Who were... do you guys know Jethro, and you, you, you study through the scriptures, You see their posterity was connected with the Kenite people, and um, God had shown grace to the Kenites, for He says, "For you showed kindness to all of the children of Israel, interestingly enough, when they came out of Egypt." So think about this for one moment is that the reason the Amalekites are getting ambushed and destroyed is because what they did to the people of God when they came out of Egypt. They were weary, they were broken, they were worn out, they weren't ready, and their rear flanks were attacked like a bunch of cowards. And now God is saying, yes, I remember the sin of Amalek, and I'm going to repay them now. But also God says, I remember the kindness of the Kenites. For what they did when the people of God came out of the wilderness. And how they responded. How Moses' father-in-law Jethro came in and he reached out to them. And he gave wisdom to Moses. God remembered this kindness to the people of God. But he warns them as he warns us today. And this is really what sticks out is that our lives mingled with the ungodly can suffer the same consequences as the ungodly. God destroyed women and children in this judgment. It's very doubtful that the women, I, I don't know, this is speculation, but I can tell you those babies weren't, you know, they didn't. They they didn't jump anybody behind closed doors. They didn't ambush anybody. But you see what happens is, is that the sins of those who uh, were the leaders, right? Who were the occupiers of this, brought their whole families into the judgment as well. They all got judged together. And it's an important thing to stop and to consider before we ourselves get so ingrained in our rebellion or in our addictions. And in these things, we're saying, well, these things only hurt me. They don't hurt anybody else. But the reality is this, is that if they're never conquered, if they're never dealt with, if they're never taken care of, those around you, those who are close to you, those who are in your family will suffer as well including the body of Christ. Go depart. Get out from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. And this should be a great warning to us who dabble in the world, who continue to go out with people and spend time with people or in relationship with people that utterly hate God. And you see this time and time again. You see a woman or a man who will think somehow they can marry an unbeliever and change their mind down the road, that they can witness to them and make it right. It hardly ever happens and usually always ends in destruction. God never endorses or condones the two together, unequally yoked. Bad company would destroy your character. Get around somebody long enough. I don't care who you are or how strong the faith you think you are. You get around somebody long enough who hates God and loves the world, you will find over a period of time you'll be broken down and you'll notice your character slip, slipping and you'll get used to seeing in the dark. It'll become a normal practice to you and God forbid you shipwreck your faith. Matthew Henry says, It is dangerous to be found in the company of God's enemies. And it is our duty and interest to come out from among them, lest we share in their sin and in their plagues. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Come out among them, and be separate, saith the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Jesus Himself says uh, in Luke 14, 5, unless you repent, unless you turn around and go the other way, you will likewise perish. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, whosoever therefore would be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're all guilty of it at some level. I'm not up here on my soapbox saying, oh, look at me, I've just got everything together. I would say that these things are a consistent tension in the believer's life. These are things. But listen, we have the word of God. It is written for us now that we can learn, we can see the examples of those in the Old Testament and we can apply it to our lives today and we can be warned and we can be encouraged, we can be convicted, we can be pushed on to holiness. We can see these things to be reminded of the word of God, to remind the very deceptive nature of sin and sinners. I mean, we need to be reminded of these things daily. I need to be reminded of these things moment to moment. It's severe. I don't want to be an enemy of God and be counted as a friend of the world. I obviously know we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to love the world. We're supposed to reach out to the world. But we're not to love worldliness. There's a big, there's a big difference. And God lays it to them very clear. Be careful. Be careful. You better come out from among them. Otherwise, you will join them in judgment. That's a terrifying thing. Those are called consequences for our sin and for our decisions. Make bad decisions. But let us sober us up this morning and really consider our ways. and Ask ourselves this morning, Am I fighting the enemy in the flesh every day? Or am I fighting the enemy on my knees? I know for me personally, when I spend time in prayer, time in God's Word, my whole day is different. Even the things that, like, I have problems or things will happen, I respond completely different. When I skip prayer, and I think I got this, self-sufficiency comes in, and I go out my day and someone says the wrong thing to me, I don't respond in the right way. I respond in the wrong way. I respond like the world. And then my problems just magnify and multiply. Now i got all kinds of problems. We always want to fight God on our knees, but then we also understand why fight a battle that we're purposely putting ourselves in. If you're hanging out doing worldly things, you're involved with worldly people, Or you're unevenly yoked. You're putting yourself into a battle that you don't have to be in. It can be preventative. I know we all get put in situations, things happen in this world, and I don't know everything that goes into it. But the basics here are saying that we can be preventative with our lives and keep a very close record on everything that we do, it only makes it easier on us, and it makes it easier on those that we love and the people that we come into contact with. I mean, the Kenites, which were obviously the posterity of Jethro, as Moses' father-in-law, who was a Kenite shepherd and priest of Midian, um, which is 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 you know pretty interesting how this all plays out. And also, as we talked about last Sunday, the reality that time doesn't erase sin and that God remembers everything as if it happened right now. I mean, the idea about God holding the Amalekites accountable, but also God being our big brother, sticking up for us and pulverizing these people for what they did to His people brings great comfort in our lives as well. So God does remember those things um, that we do to honor Him and honor His people. In and whatever, and whatever uh, measure that you think is, it, it, it is, it could be simply giving a child a, a cold glass of water. It could be simply just giving someone who is in pain a hug. It could be just not thinking about yourself for one minute and thinking about somebody else's pain. Or taking time out of yourself, out of your life. Taking money that you have and helping somebody else out. It really, um, God sees all those things. We're not doing it, in other words, so God will pat us on the back. But we're doing it as any son would want to make his father proud. Who doesn't want to do things that pleases God? That should be our motive in everything that we do. And then we read in verses 7, 8, and 9, it says, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. In other words, what that is, if you want to get a picture in your mind, um, he attacked them from one end of the country all the way to the other. So think about that. I don't know. I looked and searched and hunted. If I could give you guys the exact miles so you could get that in your mind, but I couldn't find the mileage. But I do know that it is from one end of the country to the other, so you can almost take that as being a very long distance of battle. And you could imagine the investment, the emotional investment, that they put in to this fight. I mean, just think about it for just a moment. I mean, I get tired just walking up a, a flight of stairs, um, and you think about uh, if any of you guys have been in sports. You guys even been in sports here, like football or anything like that, or it doesn't even have to be football. But your first day of practice is like hell week, uh, and, and it's literally the, the most miserable thing you've ever thought you could ever get through in your entire life. You don't even think I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna be able to survive this, right? I mean, these guys fought across an entire nation. Think about that. The battle. I know God was with them. I know God enables us. But also, they're physical people too. They would have been totally and completely exhausted. And then we see that uh, Saul changes plans. He trusted his own way and not in the Lord's. And this is where things start to go haywire. Let me just say this real quick. It's started to go haywire the moment this guy got an office. But the reality is it just started getting worse. In verse 8 he says, He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the oxen, sorry, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. Now listen to this. And were unwilling, unbendable. They're unwilling to utterly destroy them. No, we're we're not doing this. Well, God told you to do it. We're not doing it. Well, God told you to do it. We're unwilling to do it. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. What does this say to us as believers? Are there things in our own lives, and this is really what stuck out to me, are there things in our life where we tell God, no, I'm unwilling? Uh-uh, uh-uh. I'll do all these nasty things. I'll kill all the nasty stuff. All the things that are despised in my life, sure. But what about all those things that I love? Are you willing to part with those or not? Because... The scripture tells us, Jesus said, all those who will follow after me must deny themselves, right? But it even goes further. He says you must die. You must take up the cross. What he's symbolizing, what he's illustrating here, is that you must die to everything that has to do with your identity and take upon the crucified Lord's identity. This means everything must die. No saving stuff that we think is savable when God says, destroy it. This was an act of judgment. This wasn't an act of necessarily warfare. This wasn't like, oh, this is just a a battle, a decisive battle that's going to take place. No. And then you have the rules of warfare, right? We're dealing with spoil, dealing with certain things that the, that the army had. This had nothing to do with that. This was a Judgment from God. Judgments are different. You're following through as a death angel, basically. God is using you, King of Israel, and the people, to bring about a judgment upon God's enemies that hurt His people in the past. Total different criteria. Total different laws of engagement here. But you can imagine that they fought across the entire country. They would have been very familiar with the warfare politics in the sense of getting something for that long, arduous work of ridding these enemies off from the land. You would think in their mind, listen, King Saul, I busted my rear end and my life to get these people rid and out of this country. And now you think I ain't going to take anything of any value? Something to eat? One little lamb? Something? I mean, that's only speculation. We don't know that. But you must understand in context with what's going on, they would have pretty much thought in those... Areas. It is a battle. It is a warfare. They did work hard. They did deserve spoil when they went to battle. There was nothing wrong with that. That's how soldiers get paid. This was a freebie. This was a judgment of the Lord. I like what Guzik writes. He says, in a normal war, in the ancient world, armies were freely permitted to plunder their conquered foes. This is often how the army was paid, but it was wrong for anyone in Israel to benefit from the war against the Amalekites because it was an appointed judgment from God. Many commentators believe Saul held back for personal reasons. Just because of the nature of, of who, he, who he was. Saul showed himself selfish and he had an arbitrary temper, he had a love for despotic power, and his utter unfitness to perform the duties of a delegated king in Israel. He failed at all of those things. Saul spared Agag probably to enjoy the glory of displaying such a distinguished captive. These are big things that, that did the, the, the countries around them when they would when they would defeat a king. A notorious king, that, but they would defeat the king, they would march him through the city. Look at this. Look what your king did to this king. And they would march him in chains through the city so everybody could throw food at them, despise them, spit on them, and they would see look at this king, he has been defeated. But God didn't say to drag him through the city and show off. Look at this ornament of glory, this trophy. He said utterly kill everybody. Kill everything. And he didn't. But I'm sure in Saul's mind, because as tainted as it was, and how awful his leadership really was, and at a gut level, it was all about Saul. It's always been about Saul. Hasn't been about God. Hasn't been about God's people for crying out loud. He wanted to kill his own son for a spoonful of honey. It's never been about anybody except Saul and how he looks to other people, justifying himself by the things that he does. This whole idea of Agag, uh, Agag, there's different ways of saying it, uh, really is like when you hear, because for me I want to know who was this guy? You know, what was his story, you know? But the idea of Agag is really a use of words like Pharaoh. Uh, any leader that would be over the Malachites would be considered, or a malachite themselves, would be considered Agag as well. It wasn't that his name was, hey, my name's John Agag. It was more like a, a, a title given to a person, like the title of Pharaoh over the Egyptians. But he, you know, would have been, you know the man to take out. Um, contrary to Saul's claims to have completely destroyed the Amalekites, and this is just another thing that really kind of captured my interest, and this is another thing that should capture our interest in the Christian life, is that regardless of not taking out Agag, right, or the animals, it seems to show that Saul did not only not wipe out um, Agag himself, right, Samuel eventually finished the job on him. But there were other Amalekites that were allowed and they they weren't completely wiped out and they escaped as well. That also falls out of what the Lord had specifically told King Saul to wipe them out, utterly wipe them all out, not a trace left of those people. But there is a trace left of those people. We see that in uh, 1 Samuel 27:8. It was the Amalekites who raided David's city of Ziglag, stealing away his family and his possessions. 1 Samuel chapter 30:1 through 3, David pursues the Amalekites. Thought the Amalekites got wiped out. Apparently not. He pursued them, he defeated all but 400 of them and took back all that had been stolen. 1 Samuel 30, 17-20, some of those Amalekites were presumably descendants of Agag because what we read in the book of Esther. In Esther, the Jew-hating Haman is called an Agagite. Esther 3.1, Haman was probably a descendant of Agag. In either case, the situation in Persia was the result of the Amalekites, including Agag and some of his family, we assume, having been spared by King Saul centuries earlier. Saul's disobedience led, in Esther's day, to a descendant of Agag attempting genocide against the Jews. Pretty important we wiped those guys out, right? Would have been much better to have wiped them out and did what God said in the first place. Now look what happens. Today, the annual Jewish observance of Purim includes a reading of the story of the Malachites' hatred of Israel. The lasting threat posed by Agag and the Malachite shows that although disobeying the Lord may at first, hear me out, may at first appear to only affect the person sinning. Rebellion to God's commands can have consequences that affect many others over many years. Any of us wrestling with those things in our personal lives struggles with things that we think these sins are only affecting me, they're not going to affect anybody else, is a lie. It could affect your ancestors years down. Years down. I know I'm still affected by things that have happened in my great-grandpa's life. Things that have went down. I'm not talking about generational curses either. Talking about the unwillingness to repent. The unwillingness to deal with things thinking somehow that they'll just go away. They always surface somewhere. Somehow. And unfortunately, it usually hits those, the ones we love. Usually if we don't contend with those things that we know we should, our children will have to after us. Let us think upon the damning effects of not taking this guy out and taking the people out like they should have. They not only tried to preserve Agag and the animals, but there were other men in that army, the Amalekites, that were spared as well. We said, well, they could have just got away. Well, God doesn't make any mistakes. When God commands us to do something, He knows full well that that must be done. He gave the command to them to completely abolish them, wipe them out, and it was not. It didn't happen. Verses 10 and 11 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He says, I greatly regret, or in another word in the King James, it says, Repenteth me, that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's very similar to what we read in the New Testament. You know, Jesus is all those who will come after me, those who will follow me. But here it says in very gut-wrenching terms that Saul had turned his back from following me and not performed the assignment that I gave him. That was the command. It wasn't the Ten Commandments. It was the specific command from our King to do exactly what he told him to do, and he didn't do it. To such an extent where it says, God says, I regret making Saul king. I regret it. Matthew Henry writes Repentance in God is not a change of God's mind either, as it is in us, but a change of method. The method changes. And that's exactly what happens as we see. The kingdom is torn away from Saul. The change was in Saul. He turned back from following me, he says. Hereby, he made God his enemy. Samuel spent a whole night pleading for Saul. The rejection of sinners is a grief to believers. Henry goes on to write, God delights not in their death, nor should we. Saul boasts to Samuel... Of his obedience. Thus, sinners think by justifying themselves to escape being judged by the Lord. Isn't that true? We always try to justify ourselves at some level. Without repentance, we justify. Somehow we think if we can just justify it, manipulate it, twist the scriptures enough, we will circumnavigate around God's judgment. Not so. Not so at all. Some may say, well, how can this one fault that seems but a small thing to entail the loss of an entire kingdom? First of all, we've got to get this clear in our minds that there is no small sin. Nothing in Scripture is a small sin. Right, we hear that all the time. We want to minimize the sin to make it more palatable and more easy upon us. But it's not the sin per se; it's the it's the it's the sin in which in whom it was sinned against is the greatness of the sin. The sin itself can be well. I just you know I just stole a penny out of the purse. Well, it's not about it's, it's 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 irrelevant about how the how much value that you stole. Is the fact that you sinned against an infinite God who is infinite. So your sin is infinite. The enormity of your sin is based upon the enormity of an infinite God. And this is why the person who dies in their sin falls under infinite justice and judgment because their sin's not paid for. And it takes eternity to exact the judgment from that sinner. And it's never accomplished. It's forever. It's a terrifying thought. This is why we need the infinite grace that came through Jesus Christ. God Himself. Who took on the full weight of our infinite transgression against the Lord. Christ stepped in and paid for our exceedingly sinfulness with His exceedingly great grace. Satisfied on behalf of His people. And that is the only way that it can be satisfied. You've heard this saying, right? I've heard it. The devil is in the details. The devil is in the details is really an idiom alluding uh, to a catch-mysterious element hidden in the details. It indicates that something may be simple, but in the fact, the details are complicated and likely to cause problems. It actually comes from an original phrase earlier in that, where it says, God is in the details. Expressing the idea that whatever one does should be done thoroughly. That is, details are important. Details are important. Look at this case. It cost Saul his entire kingdom. Well, I didn't utterly destroy everything. I kept the commandments of the Lord. Partial obedience is full disobedience. Sanied part of it doesn't cut it. It was all or nothing. And this is what happened. James says in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. God cares about the details. Everything is connected together. Well, I only did this one sin. Yeah, but don't you understand? One sin is a violation. One Breaking one commandment is a violation of violating all of the commandments. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Really boils down to that, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, that is the motive of it all, right? It's not about looking good in front of other people. It's not a performance thing. It's a love that motivates us to want to please God over pleasing ourselves. This is the motive. This is what drives us. This is what cracks us down the middle when we do break God's laws. We do sin against God. It's because I love Him, I hurt Him. I sinned against Him. You know, I sinned against Him because I thought I could do better or I love myself more than God. I love God and I want to obey Him, and it crushes me when I don't. Literally destroys me when I know that I've hurt my Lord with my lifestyle. That's a, the right reaction. It's not always my reaction, though. I've thought to justify myself before. I'm probably one of the best ones in the business. I'm a professional. Horrible. Horrible. But because of the default of our sinful nature, we look for cop outs, scapegoats. We look for anything we can to get the, get, the, get the spotlight off from us, right? And get it onto others. Ease the tension by what? Blame. And that's exactly what Saul does. He blames, he resorts to blaming, but this was not yet until it says that Samuel in verse 11, Samuel is grieved and cries out to the Lord all night. Let me just say one thing. This certainly wasn't a small thing to Samuel. His whole life, obviously, as a judge you know the last judge in Israel his whole his whole life was was bound up I and mean, he he even loved Saul he, nothing in him desired more than to see Saul succeed he wasn't you know uh, malicious towards Saul he wasn't hoping that Saul would collapse and fall and he could say see i told you so you man man made imbecile he didn't he didn't look at things like that But he was shattered. He was shattered over the fact that God was shattered and he was shattered over the fact that the kingdom was torn away from the king. To such an extent, his default was to cry out to God all night long. When is the last time that we saw a brother or sister fall? and sin. And we're like a bunch of piranhas. We get a little sniff of blood and we just attack. You know, we all get wound up and give each other high fives and secretly reach out to each other to help me with this fight on Facebook and blah, blah, blah. Or some wounded saint gets ousted from the church. He gets a cold shoulder as soon as he falls into sin, left to himself left for dead. How much better would it be if we saw one of our brothers and sisters who have grieved the Lord to go to God in prayer and to cry out to God, even if it's all night, out of utter brokenness? Because if we had the eyes of, of a born-again believer, someone that's truly converted, truly filled with God's Spirit, truly feels how God feels, truly sees the Scripture, and truly sees themselves in that person who has just fallen, you could say, that very well could have been me. I've been close to that before, but I didn't quite go that far. But I could have been. If it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be right where He is. But no, we do? We turn around and we condemn them. We judge them and we beat them up to the point they can't even come to the church for help. Let us remember that today as we, we ponder this and ask ourselves, maybe it's better to intercede for people than to talk about people behind their back or gossip or slander somebody. Before we open our mouths and begin to talk about someone behind their back, stop for one moment and say, well, first of all, we know Christ would never do that. He would never sin. Samuel never did that. And look at the the absolute travesty of Saul's reign. Look Look what Samuel did. He was crushed. Not because of his own career, but because... Of Saul himself, he was grieved. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning, Lord. I pray, Father, that your word went forth. Lord, and that we uh, are awakened to these realities, Lord, that we need to get low. If we're ever going to see the enemies in our lives defeated, we need to get on our knees and seek the face of Christ. Lord, help us to be humble people. Forgive us of our rank pride and our competitiveness and our envy and our jealous, jealousy. Put those things to death today. Grant us the ability, Lord, to, to see things the way that You see things. And knowing full well, Lord, that You remember those things. The simple little task of giving someone a glass of water You said will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. Help us to remember to do good, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to be those at default. One who cries out to the Lord over others. And ourselves. In Jesus' name, Amen.